Thank you for joining us for another Hagley History Hangout. My name is Gregory Hargreaves, Program Officer in the Hagley Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library in Wilmington, Delaware. Now, you know, during these History Hangouts, we like to bring you some of the best research being done by folks using the historical collections at the Hagley Library, especially scholars who have received support from the Hagley Center in the form of research grants and fellowships. One such scholar joining me today is Dr. Corey Fisher-Hoffman, a visiting assistant professor at Lafayette College, and we'll be discussing her project, Unearthing the Global Division of Labor, Bethlehem Steel's Latin American Mines. Corey, thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's great. You're welcome. Uh, let's start by painting with broad strokes. What is your project about? What are you researching and writing about? So I am researching a 100-year history in which the Bethlehem Steel Corporation, which for much of the 20th century was the second largest steel company in the world, um, their operations in Latin America, obviously to produce the output of steel that they did, they were dependent on raw materials. And while the company tends to be um, characterized as this kind of all-American company and part of the U.S. steel industry, um, there's a long history of operating mostly vertically integrated uh, iron ore mines, but also manganese mines throughout Latin America. And so I'm tracing that 100-year history, and that pulls us across places like Cuba, Venezuela, Chile, Mexico, and Brazil. Uh, briefly, for those who may not know, could you explain what vertical integration means in this context? Yeah, so Bethlehem Steel, um, they actually owned and operated every aspect of the mining operations. Mm. Um, they did so through creating subsidiaries within countries. And so a part of the challenge of my work has literally, I mean, it's literally taken me five years and, and some of my work at Hagley has been helpful for this to just map out all of the subsidiaries that operated in Latin America under Be the Bethlehem Steel Corporation. Um, and its predecessors, because the corporation was formed in 1904, um, and they were actually operating in Cuba um, in the 1880s. So it's taken a long time to just map that out. And so what it means, the vertical integration part, is that as opposed to producing and having these kind of separate entities that the goal of iron mining, for example, was for profit, the goal of iron mining was to, at the beginning, certainly to supply Bethlehem steel with raw materials at a low cost. And that vertical integration means that the corporation uh, was ownership, had ownership of every aspect of production, including down to raw materials. I see. Yeah. Now, what is the hundred years you're looking at? Uh, what is the time span you have in mind? Yeah, so the first um, foray into Latin America is actually uh, prior to the formation of Bethlehem Steel Corporation, which took place in 1904. So its predecessor, Bethlehem Iron Company, um, started operating in Cuba in the 1880s. And what's so fascinating about this is that this was still under Spanish colonial rule. Um, so Cuba gained formal independence in 1898. Of course, it was followed by a long period of U.S. intervention and occupation. Um, but so Bethlehem Steel came and was pulled along with other Pennsylvania um, and Ohio capitalists to go to Cuba as a result of the 1883 change in the mining codes. Hmm. So under Spanish law, um, they decided to open up mining operations in Latin America by, by creating an incentive for corporations to mine by saying that they didn't have to pay taxes for 10 years. Hmm. Um, and so they had 10 years tax free, and it was also extremely easy to get mining claims, and very little money had to be put down. 
And so Bethlehem Steel or its predecessor, the Bethlehem Iron Company, along with Pennsylvania Steel um, and many others, fled to flocked to Cuba um, and invested as a way to have access to iron ore. Well, I see why that would appeal to the uh, American industrial capitalists. Do you have a sense of why uh, the Spanish Empire would have adopted this policy, uh, especially um, at that date? I think that's a great question. I mean, a part of the history, particularly at this stage in Cuban history, was really around sort of this competition between whether U.S. capitalists uh, would have interest in Cuba or Spain would. Hmm. It was Spain's last colony. And so it struggled to maintain interest. So in opening up, I think you're absolutely right. It, it opened the floodgates much more for U.S. interest in the country. And I think there are some deep questions about why in this moment um, would they do so. But I think one of the sort of historical reasons we can pull on is that Spain was a mining uh, country and economy. And so there's a lot of experience in mining. Um, and in fact, a lot of the early workers that operated in the iron mines in Cuba were Spanish. Um, and even following the uh, Spanish-Cuban-American War, there were many Spanish soldiers that actually stayed and worked on in the mines. And so I think the long history of mining in Spain certainly has something to do with it. I think it's less easy to come up with an explanation based on where history went about it being economically advantageous to Spain, but there's a little bit more of a sort of cultural tradition of mining that I think helps it to explain it more. Certainly, a very long tradition across the empire uh, there of uh, metallurgical uh, industries. Um, so, okay, so we have the 1880s as sort of your starting point, and do you bring it then all the way to the 1980s? I do, yeah. So the last um, the last investments that Bethlehem Steel had in Latin America was in Brazil um, mm -hmm. at a manganese mine. Um, this was an entirely different model, and I think it's helpful, you know, not to see these as just individual national studies, but what my project is doing is really trying to understand Bethlehem Steel in Latin America more broadly, because what we see is that the corporation is really learning from its experiences in different places. Um, and so before I talk about Brazil, I'll just say that the iron mines in Cuba in Chile and in Venezuela, which were vertically integrated, as I described, so wholly owned by the Bethlehem Steel Corporation, all met their end through nationalization. So every single mining operation that they had that was vertically integrated and mining iron ore ended up being taken over by those respective governments. Mm -hmm. So Bethlehem Steel um, was in this place where they were trying to strategize how to deal with growing what was called resource nationalism um, in Latin America. So this very logical desire of countries to say, wait a second, how can we are exporting minerals at cheap costs and then we're importing steel um, at very, very high rates. Why, if we have all this iron ore or manganese, why don't we have our own steel industries, right? And so this whole struggle around industrialization, development in Latin America, um, conflicted with Bethlehem Steel's interest, which was to continue to have access to cheap minerals for increased steel production and output. Mm -hmm. So in Mexico and Brazil, Bethlehem Steel had a different approach. 
And their approach was to form partially owned subsidiaries in which they were a minority owner. So they had 49% of the investment. In Brazil, this was through um, a corporation called Ecomi. Um, however, I think it's important to note that just because they had 49% of the investment in no way, shape or form, did this mean that they didn't invest huge amounts of resources, that this project wasn't wholly important to them. Um, these restrictions were both sort of strategic in terms of the corporation wanting to come up with new strategies to confront resource nationalism, as it was called, um, but also uh, having to work within the laws of those countries in which foreign ownership had been limited and restricted. But Bethlehem Steel still provided the engineering work. Um, they provided the, a lot of the expertise. Um, Ecomi, the corporation they were collaborating with, had never operated mines at the scale that Bethlehem Steel was initiating. And in the case of Brazil, what was so fascinating about this is that the manganese deposits, which were discovered in the um, region of Amapá, so first it was a part of the state of Pará in northern Brazil. And then Amapá was in 1943 with the discovery of manganese was formed as a federal territory. So it was controlled by the federal government with the purpose of development. And that development was explicitly and specifically the manganese industrial manganese mine that Bethlehem Steel had invested heavily in. Mm -hmm. And the reason why manganese was so essential to steel production and to the U.S. government in general is that there are very few sources of uh, high grade, large amounts of manganese or in the entirety of the United States. Mm -hmm. um, so the U.S. was going to be dependent on foreign sources of manganese. And as an input in steel production, it helps to basically make both stronger and more flexible steel, okay. um, which is really important for weapons production as well. Um, so the U.S. government saw this as strategic and essential. And there's one particular record that notes that Bethlehem Steel wasn't sure they wanted to invest in Brazil, but that the U.S. government said, you actually really need to do this. And we will promise to purchase 30% of what you output there and just store it as a part of the U.S. government's uh, strategic mineral reserves. Mm. So these operations um, started roughly in 1949 in Brazil, and they continued through 1988, um, which is when they met their end. And at that point, Bethlehem Steel, um, you know, was already in decline and was selling off properties. So they pulled out of their arrangement. The Brazilian corporation, Ecomi, became full owners in the mine um, and mining shut down in that part of Brazil about a decade later. Hmm. So they that's the history from the 1880s in Cuba to the 1980s in Brazil with Venezuela, Chile and Mexico mixed in there as well. Oh. One thing that was uh, really notable, perhaps about the, especially about the Brazil example, but throughout is the relationship of the state uh, to these developments, and especially in the Brazilian project, was that part of perhaps the, the good neighbor policy, or was it more strictly about uh, preparing a war footing? Well, I think it's a combination of, of all of them. Um, and so in the case of Brazil, you know, one of the interesting finds um, that is actually the National Museum of Industrial History recently got this logbook that had been sitting in someone's basement in Bethlehem. And so I live in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And so this is sort of the reality is that 
so many people's lives were touched by the history of this corporation. And as people clean out their uncle's basement, they are finding things like this original logbook um, of the engineers who were the first uh, on Bethlehem's payroll to go down to Brazil. And they're literally like day by day accounting for what they're doing. Wow. The very first day um, in the logbook, the very first entry says, you know, we met with the general who's in charge of this federal territory. Uh And uh, he assured us we would have no problems because there are neither unions nor politicians here. And so very clearly um, it showed what the corporation was looking for and what they saw as an ideal investment opportunity. Um, So, you know, I think the broader policy towards Latin America was very much in line with Bethlehem Steel's interests, which was to continue to exploit the resources within the region for as cheaply as possible. Um, to help to improve profit and production in the United States. So that maintained their goals and desires. Post-World War II, we see some some shifts in terms of um, the emergence of a global iron ore market, the financialization Mm -hmm. of mining. Um, Mm -hmm. Prior to World War II, really everything that was being produced was going into Bethlehem's steel production with very small exceptions. Hmm. Well, how did that process of post-war globalization affect these arrangements, um, which sound uh, very not only very complex and elaborate, but perhaps very delicate and dependent on fluid political situations? Yeah, I think the case of Chile is probably one of the more interesting ones to think about in relation to that question, because Bethlehem Steel had invested in 1913 um, in the mine of El Tofo, Um, which is very close to the coast, a little bit north for those who know of La Serena in Chile. Um, And they had purchased this from a French company that was also um, Schneider and Crusay, that was also um, uh, an iron producer and um, a weapons producer. They had done business with them. So there's tons of records that I actually found at Hagley of them, you know, doing business in Europe. And with the emergence of World War I, this French company and the failure of the France's attempt to create the Panama Canal, this French company is like, okay, we're done. We are um, ready to sell. And they sell this mine of, you know, some of really the highest grade iron ore in the world ever to be found um, and very close to the coast in Chile. But the challenge was how do you get iron ore, which we're talking about, you know, tons and tons of quantities of iron ore from Chile all the way to the east coast of the United States for production in the steel mills. And there were a couple of answers to that. The first one was through the Panama Canal. Um, And so when Bethlehem invested in 1913, the Panama Canal was still under construction. Uh, Bethlehem had some of the very first shipments go through the Panama Canal. Uh, That's very cool. Yeah, the consulting firm that actually um, designed the locks at the Panama Canal was later on purchased by Bethlehem Steel and subsumed into their company. Those were Lehigh University graduates, a lot of cozy relationships in Bethlehem and with Bethlehem Steel. The dock in Chile was designed at the exact dimensions of the Panama Canal. So this was sort of all engineered and the infrastructure was created here to move massive amounts of earth from Chile to um, the east coast of the United States. And at first that was uh, figuring out whatever ports would work to get it on rails up to Bethlehem. Uh, But in 1916, with the purchase of Pennsylvania Steel Company, the Bethlehem Steel Corporation uh, expanded and they purchased their mill at Sparrows Point, which was the only deep sea mill um, Mm -hmm. in, in the Baltimore area in Maryland. 
And so they created this sort of infrastructure route that led from Chile to Baltimore. And Baltimore then became the most important mill for imported ore. The infrastructure wasn't really set up for them to be dependent on domestically produced iron ore. So at least the majority, um, and if not more, almost total amounts of iron ore that came into Sparrows Point were um, imported. And so we see this arrangement. And in the 1950s in Chile, it sort of hits its peak as uh, the mine in El Tofo is starting to become depleted, which we can discuss as a very sort of economic concept, not necessarily a material one. Um, but the costs of extracting it and moving it through the Panama Canal were becoming more expensive and there were cheaper sources available elsewhere. Bethlehem Steel made the choice, and it was a very interesting choice, to invest in a new mine in Chile called El Romeral. And that is the only mine of all of them that continues in operation to this day. Hmm. That investment um, was partnered with the Chilean government to also supply iron ore for their new steel plant at Huachipato. And written into the original 1913 agreement with Bethlehem Steel and, the, and Chile was that um, if Chile got a steel uh, mill up and running and a steel industry going, that Bethlehem Steel would help provide iron ore at cost. So they made this massive investment in El Romeral, but unlike the mine at El Tofu, which had a company town, which was extremely um, isolated, where there was a whole, you know, three generations of iron workers and miners and a whole culture and community. To this day, people who identify deeply as Tofinos, meaning people who come from this town of El Tofu, um, you know, all of that really shifted with El Romeral. They built this huge mine. Uh, they didn't build a company town. Instead, they had people commuting from the city. Um, and even by the 1960s, as Bethlehem Steel started to import more iron ore from Venezuela, they started to see El Romeral more as a financial arrangement, less as um, one that supplies uh, that supplied raw materials to steel production. So they actually started selling the vast majority of the iron ore from El Romeral to Japan. Um, and so Japan's steel industry was highly dependent on Chilean ore. And mm -hmm. as they moved to larger and larger ore carriers that could no longer fit through the Panama Canal and the tolls in the Panama Canal were going up, they found sources like in Venezuela to be more economically profitable Whereas they could sell large shipments to Japan because boats didn't need to pass through the Panama Canal to go from Chile to Japan. Now, all of this happened within the context of massive political shifts within Chile, um, growing movements of workers and particular attention to the copper mining industry, which has always been um, you know, the largest mineral industry in Chile with iron ore being oftentimes forgotten, but Bethlehem Steel being the owner of the most important multinational iron company in Chile's history. And so um, as there started to be movements of workers, uh, union organizers, uh, the election of Salvador Allende in 1970 on the very campaign of the nationalization of the mega mining um, firms in Chile, Bethlehem Steel got nervous. This was just when they had invested $20 million in an expansion at El Romeral. 
And sure enough, when Salvador Allende came into power, within weeks of assuming the presidency, um, the mines were nationalized. And the Bethlehem Steel Corporation and its subsidiary called the Bethlehem Chile Iron Mines Company was actually the very first company to be nationalized in Chile. Um, and so there's a really interesting history. But from there, certainly, you know, they, their properties had already been nationalized about 10 years earlier in Cuba. Um, and so there's this growing experience of uh, what it means to operate in countries that are challenging this model of uh, underdevelopment in which many countries in Latin America are forced into these economic arrangements as a legacy of colonization and colonialism to export raw materials cheaply, to import industrial goods at a high cost. And many were challenging this model and trying to build alternatives. And Bethlehem Steel was certainly a part of that long history. Well, that's just a, a fascinating example of such a sweeping story. Now, what collections at um, the Hagley Library did you dive into to help you uncover this story? Yeah, so interestingly, while the Bethlehem, there is a Bethlehem Steel Corporation collection at Hagley, that corporation is largely made up of what the company itself selected for a, um, a shipbuilding museum that they were really interested in creating, but that never was created. So there certainly are some things in that collection that are interesting and of relevance. Um, I can say, for example, in that collection, one thing that I found that um, you know I, I really think about often are, and maybe you can help me with the vocabulary here, these kind of old glass images from the 1880s. Is there, what's the name of that kind of photography? Do you know the name? Um, uh, I'm, I'm drawing a blank, but I know what you're talking about. The, uh, sure, uh, the glass negatives. Yeah, glass negatives. So these old glass negatives. And, you know, it was very expensive to take pictures in this time period. And there's like about eight of them. And I think more than anything, it really shows me what what did this photographer who is anonymous, I don't know who it was, who worked for the company, want to use these kind of precious resources to capture images of? And it showed me the gaze of the company at this time in the 1880s in Cuba. And so the things that they have pictures of, it's very much this what is exotic kind of images. So there's pictures of monkeys and there's pictures of coconut trees. And then there's pictures of black children and there's pictures of black men with a caption that says, former slave. So when Bethlehem Steel started operating in Cuba, slavery was still legal. Mm. And so we can see some of the kind of racialized gaze that came from the company through these glass images, right? So we have we have coconuts and we have black people as the main kind of um, exotic images to capture and bring home. So those mm -hmm. are in Hagley's collections, which were really fascinating um, uh, to look at and to also sort of um, you know, fill in some of the gaps in terms of what was the perspective of the company at that time of Cubans and of the people where they worked. Another really important find, and this was in um, Archibald Johnston's collection. So he was the former vice president of Bethlehem Steel um, in the early part of the 1900s, the early part of the 20th century. And so he um, was in an interesting position because at that stage in the corporation's history as vice president, he was responsible for all international affairs, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So that meant that he was responsible for both the mining operations and the raw materials, but also the weapons sales. Mm -hmm. 
And that changed as the corporation got bigger and developed. Those that were dealing with weapons sales were very different than those that were managing raw materials. But at his particular moment in the corporation, he did both. And it was actually very interesting to read through his papers, which are in Hagley's collections. And there's two letters that stood out to me that were written two years apart from each other. So one in 1908 and one in 1910. And this is between the former vice president, Archibald Johnston, and then the then president, famous Charles Schwab of the Bethlehem Steel Corporation, different than the financier, Charles Schwab. Um, and these letters were about trying to figure out how to find the quote unquote, you know, right men to work in Latin America. They had had a lot of problems with staff turnover. Keep in mind, these are really distant places. Communication is hard. They wanted people they could really trust. And what was really interesting is their distinction between who they wanted to sell arms to, arms in Latin America, versus who they wanted to run their mines. And this is this back and forth. And so in terms of who they wanted to sell arms, they really wanted um, individuals that were, uh, you know, independently wealthy, that could work on a commission and that came with their own social networks, that they could have really low overhead within countries in Latin America, sell weapons and probably bring their own networks, but not be dependent on sales to survive. And then in a very sort of distinct difference, what they wanted in terms of their mining operations were those that were technically skilled and trained in mining operations. So this is kind of the emergence of engineering and mining engineering as a profession. Um, and also they wanted to have people that were upwardly mobile that didn't come from money. Mm -hmm. And that was eventually see the success of the mine as their own professional and personal success. Hmm. Um, and so they had these kind of different images. And what really stood out to me is that, you know, in doing this project, I've interviewed over 40 people who were involved in Bethlehem Steel's operations in Latin America, including a number of engineers who lived their lives in these mines. And I was thinking, you know, here they are in the 1908, 1910, spelling out the kind of guy they want. And it did take a few decades in terms of changes in education and in the emergence of a kind of business mentality and all of these things. But essentially, you know, a lot of the people I interviewed fit that description as people who, you know, were first generation, had gone to college, um, were upwardly mobile, worked in the mines, dedicated their lives to the success of those mines without a lot of oversight from the corporation, which was, of course, very distant. So that was a really interesting find for me in Hagley's collections as well. Oh, that's great. And it's, it's such a thrill to find um, these materials uh, that are so useful. I'd like to circle back briefly to the glass negatives. What would be the function from the perspective of Bethlehem of capturing these image of the exotic other and especially situating it adjacent to um, Cuba and Latin America, perhaps uh, more broadly, as a source of raw materials, as a location of investment. Um, how is the company either interpreting these images or what was their purpose of making these images in the first place? Well, I don't really have the answers to that question, right? Like, all this is the thing about archival research is like, all I have is these images. And of course, you know, um, I can draw from theories and analysis and a historical understanding of the, the time and the culture of the company. So some things that are really clear that could help us lead us towards an answer to that question. Fair, fair. fair. <laughs> is, 
you know, that Bethlehem Steel had a highly racialized logic embedded in its organization of the company. So mm-hmm. even on the south side here in Bethlehem um, at the steel mill plant, you know, it's it's a very widely known that the um, Hungarians did one aspect of the work, the Slovenians did the other, the Puerto Ricans later in history, and the Mexicans later worked in the coke work plants. So there was this like very racialized organization of labor. Um, and that, you know, even among those who later became what we think of as white today, um, highly organized ethnic divisions and racialized divisions of labor. So that part is clear. We also see within Bethlehem Steel's kind of empire that there were steel mills all over the United States. Largely, they had sort of Eastern markets, domination in Eastern markets, um, competing with U.S. steel that was a little bit further west. But in that process, um, many of those steel mills became important places for racial integration where Black folks from the South came up and got jobs um, in the industrialized North. However, not in Bethlehem where uh, the plant that was located in the same city as corporate headquarters, which was quite unusual. This was a multinational corporation that was situated in a small Pennsylvania city, um, really went out of their way to ensure that there were as few Black steelworkers as possible in the city of Bethlehem. Mm -hmm. And so there's a long history of sort of the the racism that existed within the company and the culture. Um, And that's written about in a bit in um, Crisis in Bethlehem, which is a journalistic account of the rise and fall of the company um, that really documents this kind of very conservative, uh, very sexist, white, male-dominated culture, which in some ways was, you know, par for the course for corporate America in the time periods that we're talking about. But I think there's a, an aspect of Bethlehem that was quite particular um, as well. And this is something that I trace mostly in looking at the culture of company towns throughout Bethlehem Steel's empire. So I look at both um, El Tofu, which I mentioned in Chile, um, Serra de Navio, which is the company town um, in Brazil that operated, the mining town of El Pau in Venezuela, as well as Sparrows Point um, and Dundalk and the communities that were built around the mine, uh, the excuse me, around the steel mill in Baltimore area. And so we can see some continuities around hierarchies, racialized divisions of labor, order, um, sort of these kind of strict stratification policies that really aim to reproduce these racial hierarchies that we see um, throughout Bethlehem. And also, you know, some of what I'm I'm looking at and arguing is also to really export those to Latin America. And so as Bethlehem Steel was importing iron ore and raw materials, they were Mm -hmm. also ideas and ideologies around racial thinking. Um, And in doing so, creating a kind of whiteness in Latin America, which has always been defined based on its proximity to North Americans um, and to Europeans. And so this kind of proximity created the emergence and possibility of an elite in Latin America. And this is particularly illustrated in the cases of Mexico and Brazil, which were these partially owned subsidiaries because um, they really created some of the first millionaires in Brazil and in Mexico through these collaborations. And so Bethlehem Steel gave rise to an elite class within Latin America 
Um, and that elite class internalized um, and also transformed some of these kinds of logics of racial thinking that were mm. exported by Bethlehem Steel. Wow, that is just that is just fascinating. And I really like your use of the phrase uh, Bethlehem's empire to describe this phenomenon as it sprawls across uh, continents. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the, at the core of my research is I'm really engaging with a popular narrative and living in Bethlehem, I say popular narrative because I mean, you can go to the grocery store and talk to anybody, <laughs> everyone has an opinion about what happened and why Bethlehem Steel Corporation met its demise, which it, you know, had its uh, last cast in the late 1990s. Um, shut down steel production in 1998 in Bethlehem after shutting down many of their other plants and then ultimately fired, filed for bankruptcy in 2001. Um, and so this was, you know, of somewhat recent history. We're talking 20 years ago that the company closed and, of course, left a huge impact on this region. But much of the argument that many people make is that Bethlehem Steel shut down because of globalization. They argue that you know, uh, Bethlehem could no longer compete with steel being imported first from Japan and then later from China. And of course, trying to understand why that's the case had to do with, depending on where you sit and your position within this, you know, either the sort of opulence of the corporate class or the overly, de overly demanding union, right? Um, and so essentially it just cost too much to produce steel because people were greedy at the top or greedy at the bottom, depending on how you see it. And that all of those things um, then intersected with a changing economy and Bethlehem Steel could no longer compete in the global economy. And this is why the company ultimate, ultimately met its demise. And one of the arguments that I'm making in my research is that while Bethlehem Steel may have been a victim, quote unquote, to globalization later on, it was very much an instigator and built the kind of infrastructure for global trade. Um, and so it's a really important to revisit that narrative and understand this much broader history. That's such a great insight. And Corey, thank you so much for sharing it with us and the rest of your work. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. Well, that's great. And for the audience, if you would like more Hagley History Hangouts or more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, join us online. You can visit us at hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y.org. Don't be a stranger. <laughs>